Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Fearsome Touch of Death" by Robert E. Howard. This is first published in Weird Tales, February 1930. It's uh, subtitled. Uh, a Tale of Stark Unreasoning Terror. Maybe that's just a way of getting you hooked on on this story. Um, I, I, I that's, always... That's the editor's line. Yeah. Right? That's not Howard's line. No. Yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice. But it makes me think <laughs> of um, the dead man in the story uh, a little bit. So maybe we'll talk about that on the other end. We've done lots of... Robert E. Howard. This is not one of his, um, you know, many series characters. Uh, it's not Cull. It's not um, Conan. There's no uh, Solomon Kane in here. This is a one-off character, um, which he is not famous for. But the, what I've come to realize over the years of reading Howard is, is that although we, as readers of Robert E. Howard's stories, tend to focus on characters. He is doing that as a way to sell stories. If you sell one story, you can get asked back to bring another story by the same character. He actually is just a fan of of storytelling, and even in a story like this, uh, he knows what he's doing. So I I think we can follow follow this uh, character where he goes and see what happens to him. Would you care to read this for us? Sure. It begins with a, uh, a, a a poem that is sort of a prayer, mm-hmm. um, which you can tell the way by the way it's set typographically. So, the fearsome touch of death. <clears throat> as long as midnight cloaks the earth with shadows grim and stark, God save us from the Judas kiss of a dead man in the dark. Old Adam Farrell lay dead in the house wherein he had lived alone for the last 20 years. A silent, churlish recluse in his life, he had known no friends, and only two men had watched his passing. Dr. Stein rose and glanced out the window into the gathering dusk. You think you can spend the night here then? He asked his companion. This man, Falred by name, assented. Yes, certainly. I guess it's up to me. Rather than useless and primitive custom, sitting up with the dead, commented the doctor, preparing to depart. But I suppose in common decency we will have to bow to precedence. Maybe I can find someone who will come over here and help you with your vigil. Faldridge shrugged his shoulders. I doubt it. Farrell wasn't liked, wasn't known by many people. I scarcely knew him myself, but I don't mind sitting up with a corpse. Dr. Stein was removing his rubber gloves, and Fallred watched the process with an interest that almost amounted to fascination. A slight involuntary shudder shook him at the memory of touching those gloves, slick, cold, clammy things, like the touch of death. You may get lonely tonight if I don't find anyone, the doctor remarked as he opened the door. Not superstitious, are you? (laughs) Fallred laughed, scarcely. To tell the truth, from what I hear of Farrell's disposition, I'd rather be watching his corpse than have been his guest in life. 
The door closed and Fallred took up his vigil. He seated himself in the only chair the room boasted, glanced casually at the formless sheeted bulk on the bed opposite him, and began to read by the light of the dim lamp which stood on the rough table. Outside, the darkness gathered swiftly, and finally Fallred laid down his magazine to rest his eyes. He looked again at the shape which had, in life, been the form of Adam Farrell, wondering what quirk in the human nature had made the sight of a corpse not only so unpleasant, but such an object of fear to many. Unthinking ignorance, seeing in dead things a reminder of death to come, he decided lazily and began idly contemplating as to what life had held for this grim and crabbed old man who had neither relatives nor friends and who had seldom left the house wherein he had died. The usual tales of miser hoarded wealth and had accumulated, but Fallred felt so little interest in the whole matter that it was not even necessary for him to overcome any temptation to pry about the house for possible hidden treasure. He returned to his reading with a shrug. The task was more boresome than he had thought for. After a while, he was aware that every time he looked up from his magazine and his eyes fell upon the bed with its grim occupant, he started involuntarily as if he had for an instant forgotten the presence of the dead man and was unpleasantly reminded of the fact. The start was slight and instinctive, but he felt almost angered at himself. He realized for the first time the utter and deadening silence which enwrapped the house, a silence apparently shared by the night, for no sound came through the window. Adam Farrell had lived as far apart from his neighbors as possible, and there was no other house within hearing distance. Fulred shook himself as if to rid his mind of unsavory speculations and went back to his reading. A sudden vagrant gust of wind whipped through the window in which the light in the lamp flickered and went out suddenly. Fulred, cursing softly, groped in the darkness for matches, burning his fingers on the hot lamp chimney. He struck a match, relighted the lamp, and glancing over at the bed, got a horrible mental jolt. Adam Farrell's face stared blindly at him, the dead eyes wide and blank, framed in the gnarled gray features, even as Fulred instinctively shuddered. His reason explained the apparent phenomenon. The sheet that covered the corpse had been carelessly thrown across the face, and the sudden puff of wind had disarranged it and flung it aside. Yet there was something grisly about the thing, something fearsomely suggestive, as if in the cloaking dark a dead hand had flung aside the sheet just as if the corpse were about to rise at Fulred. An imaginative man shrugged his shoulders at these ghastly thoughts and crossed the room to replace the sheet. The dead eyes seemed to stare at him malevolently with an evilness that transcended the dead man's churlishness in life. The workings of a vivid imagination, Fulred knew, and recovered the gray face, shrinking as his hand chanced to touch the cold flesh, slick and clammy, the touch of death. He shuddered with the natural revulsion of the living for the dead and went back to his chair and, and magazine. At last, growing sleepy, he lay down upon a couch which, by some strange whim of the original owner, formed part of the room's scant furnishings and composed himself for slumber. He decided to leave the light burning, telling himself that it was in accordance with the usual custom of leaving lights burning for the dead, for he was not willing to admit to himself that he already was conscious of a dislike for lying in the darkness with the corpse. 
He dozed, awoke with a start and looked at the sheeted form on the bed. Silence reigned over the house and outside. It was very dark. The hour was approaching midnight with its accompanying eerie domination over the human mind. Fallred glanced again at the bed where the body lay and found the sight of the sheeted object most repellent. A fantastic idea had birth in his mind and grew that beneath the sheet, the mere lifeless body had become a strange, monstrous thing, a hideous, conscious being that watched him with eyes which burned through the fabric of the cloth. This thought... A mere fantasy, of course. He explained to himself by the legends of vampires, undead ghosts, and such like. The fearsome attributes with which the living have cloaked the dead for countless ages. Since primitive man first recognized in death something horrid and apart from life. Man feared death, thought Fallred, and some of his fear of death took hold on the dead so that they too were feared. And the sight of the dead engendered grisly thoughts, gave rise to dim fears of hereditary memory lurking back in the dark corners of the brain. At any rate, that silent, hidden thing was getting on his nerves. He thought of uncovering the face on the principle that familiarity breeds contempt. The sight of the features, calm and still in death, would banish, he thought, all such wild conjectures as were haunting him in spite of himself. But the thought of those dead eyes staring in the lamplight was intolerable. So at last, he blew out the light and lay down. This fear had been stealing upon him so insidiously and gradually that he had not been aware of its growth. With the extinguishing of the light, however, and the blotting out of the sight of the corpse, things assumed their true character and proportions, and Fallred fell asleep almost instantly on his lips a faint smile for his previous folly. He awakened suddenly. How long had he been asleep? He did not know. He sat up, his pulse pounding frantically, the cold sweat beating his forehead. He knew instantly where he was, remembered the other occupant of the room. But what had awakened him? A dream. Yes, now he remembered. A hideous dream in which the dead man had risen from the bed and stalked stiffly across the room with eyes of fire and a horrid leer frozen on his gray lips. Fallred had seemed to lie motionless, helpless. Then, as the corpse reached a gnarled and horrible hand, he had awakened. He strove to pierce the gloom, but the room was all blackness, and all without was so dark that no gleam of light came through the window. He reached a shaking hand toward the lamp, then recoiled as if from a hidden serpent sitting there in the dark with a fiendish corpse was bad enough, but he dared not light the lamp for fear that his reason would be snuffed out like a candle at what he might see. Horror. Stark and unreasoning had full possession of his soul. He no longer questioned the instinctive fears that rose in him. All those legends he had heard came back to him and brought a belief in them. Death was a hideous thing, a brain-shattering horror, imbuing lifeless men with a horrid malevolence. Adam Farrell in his life had been simply a churlish but harmless man. Now he was a terror, a monster, a fiend lurking in the shadows of fear, ready to leap on mankind with talons dipped deep in death and insanity. Fulred sat there, his blood freezing, and fought out his silent battle. Faint glimmerings of reason had begun to touch his fright when a soft, stealthy sound 
again froze him. He did not recognize it as the whisper of the night wind across the windowsill. His frenzied fancy knew it was only the tread of death and horror. He sprang from the couch, then stood undecided. Escape was in his mind, but he was too dazed to even try to formulate a plan of escape. Even his sense of direction was gone. Fear had so stultified his mind that he was not able to think consciously. The blackness spread in long waves about him, and its darkness and void entered into his brain. His motions, such as they were, were instinctive. He seemed shackled with mighty chains, and his limbs responded sluggishly like an imbecile's. A terrible horror grew in him and reared its grisly shape that the dead man was behind him, was stealing upon him from the rear. He no longer thought of lighting the lamp. He no longer thought of anything. Fear filled his whole being. There was room for nothing else. He backed slowly away in the darkness, hands behind him, instinctively feeling the way. With a terrific effort, he partly shook the clinging mists of horror from him and the cold sweat clammy upon his body strove to orient himself. He could see nothing, but the bed was across the room in front of him. He was backing away from it. There was where the dead man was lying according to all rules of nature. If the thing were as he felt behind him, then the old tales were true. Death did implant in lifeless bodies an unearthly animation, and dead men did roam the shadows to work their ghastly and evil will upon the sons of men. Then, great God, what was man but a wailing infant, lost in the night and beset by frightful things from the black abysses and the terrible unknown voids of space? These conclusions he did not reach by any reasoning process. They leaped full-grown into his terror-dazed brain. He worked his way, slowly backward, groping, clinging to the thought that the dead man must be in front of him. Then his back-flung hands encountered something, something slick, cold, and clammy, like the touch of death. A scream shook the echoes, followed by the crash of a falling body. The next morning, they who came to the house of death found two corpses in the room. Adam Farrell's sheeted body lay motionless upon the bed, and across the room lay the body of Fallred, beneath the shelf where Dr. Stein had absentmindedly left his gloves, rubber gloves, slick and clammy to the touch of a hand groping in the dark, a hand of one fleeing his own fear. Rubber gloves, slick and clammy and cold, like the touch of death. I'm somehow thinking this is funny. I've never thought it was funny before. Um, But objectively, it's it's pretty funny. It's a guy scared himself to death. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it doesn't feel like it's going to be that. there is a story by H.G. Wells called The Red Room, which is about a guy who, after, for some reason, he's, he's like, there's a lot of stories like this, where some guy is going to spend a night in a haunted house uh, or a haunted chamber uh, for, like, a bet. And uh, so sometimes they do it for money. Sometimes they do it, like, you have to sleep in the house for a month in order to inherit the estate or whatever. 
in this particular one by H.G. Wells, um, there's like this massive buildup to the horror of this room with, you know, the, the, uh, servants of the house are like old witches looking and they're disabled and they say you know strange things that sound like they they're ominous um and the guy takes he goes up to the room i don't believe any of this stuff i'm a i'm a materialist etc but he takes a gun with him (laughs) (laughs) and then in the middle of the night you know he has all these feelings like happen in this story and he fires the gun um, and then, you know, the next day, um, you know, there was nothing up there, right? It was all in his head. Um, so this fits into that tradition, but the, the main thing I think he's picking up is actually, it's, he's kind of like simplified, uh, there's a kind of set of Edgar Allan Poe stories that a lot of people, uh, know. And the one I think that's most famous in this, or the center of the, this set would be the telltale heart where you've got a guy who did a murder and then is driven insane by his his uh, hearing something that's not there and then ends up confessing to the to the crime he would have otherwise gotten away with it so i think what robert e howard's done here is he's actually simplified it he's taken the monomania of these very strange edgar Allan poe stories where somebody's obsessed with teeth or <laughs> or somebody's eye or whatever it is. Um, and he's actually turned it on himself. Like, he's turned it on the main thing. And there's this meta aspect of the story, which I think is super cool. Um, we don't know where this is. It's probably somewhere in the United States. But there's no setting mentioned at all. It's just dark. He doesn't live near anybody else. You know, they, they're speaking English, right? Could be anywhere. Um, but he's got a chair and he's got a magazine. And we never find out what he's reading, but we, as readers, are sitting here holding the pages of a magazine, reading about this scary thing, and, oh, it's really scary, and I'm distracted, and what if the light goes out? And so there's this meta aspect of the story that I think uh, Howard's taking advantage of, and then his repeated invocation of these phrases like... uh, the fearsome touch of death, which comes up many times, slick and cold and clammy. Uh, it's a it's a magic spell to uh, have us have a heart attack just having read this horror. <laughs> um, and then, of course, it was just the guy forgot his his rubber gloves. But um, the the uh, narrator, or not narrator, main character, his name is Fallred. Um, and I was thinking, that's a funny name, because it's not like a, a feral is a, is a real name. It means, uh, it's Irish, of course, because, um, Howard was Irish, thought of himself as an Irishman. Um, it means man of courage or hero. Uh, we've got, doc- got Dr. Stein, who's, you know, Dr. Stone, but fall red's a bit funny. But then, um, uh, what happens at the end, uh, we're reading the story. He was reading a magazine. Um, and we're told his uh, his major problem <laughs> is he was an imaginative man. <laughs> like us, as readers, we're reading this story, we're getting under the spell. Like him, we are imaginative. Falred, an imaginative man, shrugged his shoulders at these ghastly thoughts. Right? He's saying, ah, what can you do? But no. <laughs> the imagination got to him, 
and he falls after he have we he has read and we have read the story. So it's cute. It's very cute. <laughs> I, I agree with all that you say, Jesse. I think you are quite right. I think the story goes beyond that in at least two directions. One, I have great faith in one is uh, shamelessly speculative. The one I have great faith in is that, unlike the Poe story, this isn't really a story about the individual character. That is, in The Telltale Heart, uh, there, there is no reason why the the main character fears the eye of the old man, That's the right. terrible eye. Um, but here, there is a reason to feel a little creepy. I mm-hmm. have, I have stood vigil, and it's it's it, it's not just like oh, there's another table in the room. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, it's it's a little creepy. Of course it is. And what this story does then is have the fellow think about the naturalness of that creepiness. He calls it a hereditary imagination. Mm-hmm. As human beings inherit this, and by bringing up vampires and monsters, in effect. If we come away reading this as a completely naturalistic story, I mean, in the Poe, you say, well, it was his own guilty conscience Mm -hmm. that made him hallucinate the hearing of the sounds of the telltale heart. Here, it's his own something, uh, imagination, Mm -hmm. that drives him. But it's not, there's nothing special about this guy. This guy is a stand-in for humanity. Mm -hmm. And so, in effect, I think this story is suggesting... I mean, it's, it occurs in weird, it's published in Weird Tales, and it's suggesting all those other stories you're going to find in this magazine and in other issues of this magazine that have vampires. And goes, we believe in them because we have concocted to believe in them. Mm-hmm. They're not real. As you say, Jesse, this is a meta story. It's a meta story that talks about the significance of those stories. Mm-hmm. The word clammy occurs six times in this quite brief story. Oh, yeah. And four of them are on the last page. Mm -hmm. I cannot help but think that there is a a tremendous dichotomy between doctors who are supposed to preserve life, but this one is present at death. And he must have been doing something with with Adam Farrell because he was wearing rubber gloves. Mm -hmm. There's something about the coldness and the clamminess that is the antithesis of life. So the corpse is in effect, um, the, the rubber gloves are a metonym for the corpse. But since our fellow feels hands, rubber gloves, you know, are stiff enough to feel like hands, uh, since he feels them, it's as if someone had come up behind him. Mm-hmm. All in his mind, all in his mind. I think that Howard has actually written this beautifully to function as a critique of the ways in which we give credence to the monstrous. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important, I think, in Weird Tales. And as sure you is. say, it's meta because we actually feel it along with them. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, ho, oh, oh. ho. And uh, you, now, hearing a, a reading aloud, 
like a campfire tale, um, you see the humor in it. But as you said yourself, reading it initially alone, even though it's highly expectable, it didn't seem like a humorous denouement at all. No. It seemed like, whoa, this guy has really, you know, done something amazing. So that's the part I'm pretty secure in. The, the shameless speculation is this. You know Howard's work and Howard's life much better than I do, so I'll just throw something out and you mm-hmm. know, correct me or, or run with it. Howard was born in 1906 and died in 1936. Mm-hmm. Died as a young man, prolific in those last 10 or 12 years of his life, but died a young man by suicide. Mm-hmm. He was living with his mother. His mother was very sick. And if I recall correctly, the story is that when he goes and learns that his mother's illness is terminal, he goes out to the car and shoots himself. Mm -hmm. In other words, his mother hasn't become a ghost to haunt him. His mother is leaving life. And what he does, this writer of superb imagination, is cause his own death Mm -hmm. by his contemplation of his mother having been dead. Mm-hmm. This story strikes me, albeit six years before that suicide, as premonitory. I didn't it, think about it, it that way, but you're absolutely right. It is. Well, as I say, you know his life better than I do, but it it sure felt to me like, you know, if if this fellow were seeing a therapist, the therapist would want to be asking, what motivated you to write this story, Bob? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I can tell I can tell you the answer to that. Cash. Please. Cash. He was uh <laughs> unlike unlike uh, uh Lovecraft who was also publishing in Weird Tales and who with whom he corresponded greatly. Um Lovecraft was wanted to be a successful writer but didn't like crass commercialism. And so the difference between Robert E. Howard and and uh Lovecraft is that Lovecraft will do anything not to be crass. <laughs> Whereas uh, Robert E. Howard would prefer to write historical fiction. Um, he will write for whoever will pay him. And he has an ability to do that. He's, he's actually done something in here that um, he didn't need to do. But he did it because why not? It's just another kind of fear. Um, and I'm going to throw this uh, line at you, and you can see it's it's basically it's a Lovecraftian line. This is something that I think is so interesting about Robert E. Howard is he will take things that Lovecraft does and says I can write Lovecraft stories, and he does. There are a number of stories by Love uh, by Howard that are Lovecraft stories. Um, they use the monsters, they use the setup. They're usually a little uh, less fainting, but he'll he'll put fainting in them if he needs to <laughs> to to have the effect. Um, but this is a cosmic horror line. Listen to this. Then, great God, what was man but a wailing infant lost in the night and beset by frightful things from the black abysses and the terrible unknown voids of space and time? So this is the the fear of the vastness of the universe. When this guy's just in one room in some guy's, you know, roughly uh, cheapo house, there's a, there's a um, uh, a focus here on on the horror of the situation, and he will t- he will bring any kind of horror in because he, 
I think the imaginative man here is the reader. It is the person who is uh, willing to scare themselves and say, well, I wonder what could happen if a vampire was in the room. And it's so interesting because early on in the story, we're told um, that this guy might have been one of those misers who never spent a coin in his life so that he could hide it away somewhere in the house. But Fallred has no interest in searching for it. This isn't a uh, uh, punishment for being greedy story. This is a death by too much imagination story. And he explicitly avoids going down directions that would, you know, justify what happened. It's, it's really funny. Adam Farrell is dead and he kills a guy. <laughs> Just by being there, right? Just by having this guy have no friends and this guy knows him slightly he's the only one who has to do this duty which um is actually related to another monomania thing from the 19th century that i think we're we're seeing which is fear of uh, premature burial right so uh premature burial would be something people are afraid of one way yeah uh, if you're sitting shiva if you're trying to um Make sure that the person isn't... I actually read a story very recently about a woman who was uh, on the way to the graveyard in the coffin, and they, start, they heard a, some banging. It was in South America. And they opened it up, and there she was, sweating away. Um, they took her to the hospital. She subsequently died. But this is a, a, a legitimate fear. P doctors can be wrong, right? And so somebody needs to do this. This ancient instinct to be with the the dead overnight have this vigil to make sure that the next day when they're buried they're not going to be buried alive and alone it, it's a honorable and um, reasonable instinct that we have but it's also scary I think you're right I think that uh, that you've, you've really pointed to something crucial in you're building on your attention to that Lovecraftian line. Um, if you go further from that, you know, it, it, it's scary, but it's, there's not reason. That's what Howard says. He says, then, I'm repeating what you read, great God, what was man but a wailing infant lost mm -hmm. in the night and beset by frightening things, frightful things from the black abysses and the terrible unknown voids of space and time. These conclusions he did not reach by any reasoning process. They leaped full-grown into his terror-dazed heart. He worked his way slowly backward, etc. Mm -hmm. In other words, Howard is suggesting that there is nothing reasonable about Lovecraft and the others who write this way only to terrify us by their styles. Howard wants us to recognize there's something else in life. And we need to hang on to reason. That's, of course, brings us back to Poe. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we recognize that the, the hero in the telltale heart has heard only what he himself has heard, we realize that the three policemen who are sitting there and talking with him, three or two, I forget now, um, they are the voice of reason. They are investigating. Whereas the voice of unreason is one in which reason has been short-circuited. It's a comment on what it means to be weird at all mm. in the context of weird tales. That in a way, Howard is saying, okay, 
Howard, you know, um, H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. Um, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.